0: Hello and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and today we'll be examining the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica, does political correctness pose a threat to the military? And we are joined today by the author of one of the essays in this issue, Andrew Roberts, Honorary Senior Scholar at Keyes College, Cambridge, and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. Andrew, thanks for joining us.
1: Hello. It's good to be on the show again.
0: So let's start here. There's a phrase that we hear in reference to the military sometimes. In fact, we heard uh, Mike Huckabee use it recently in an American presidential debate that the military shouldn't be a vehicle for social experimentation. In other words, whatever social acts you've got to grind, whether it's women in the military, homosexuals in the military, transsexuals now in the military, the question of whether or not we do those things ought to be subordinated to the question of what does the most to advance the core objectives of the armed forces. And you write at Strategica, quoting you here, at the heart of it lies the question, are the armed forces different from the rest of us? Close quote. Uh, That's a big prompt. And now I hand it back off to <laughs> back off to its author, Andrew. Are they different from the rest of us?
1: I think they they have to be, yes, because what we ask of them is so completely different from anything else that we ask of anybody else in society. Perhaps excluding firefighters. Other than that, people aren't expected in their daily lives to put their lives on. Um, on the line and uh, to kill people, which is effectively what we ask our military to do. So as a result, um, I think it's acceptable if we have a separate and different set of rules that um, uh, that the army lives by than w- the ones that we would expect in the rest of society.
0: Let's talk about the issue that has become sort of the newest flashpoint here, which is the issue of transsexual serving Uh, Last month, Ash Carter, the American secretary of defense, announced that the Pentagon is studying the issue of allowing transsexual members of the military to serve openly. In the statement that he released at the time, he said – and I'm quoting him here. At a time when our troops have learned from experience that the most important qualification for service members should be whether they're able and willing to do their job, our officers and enlisted personnel are faced with certain rules that tell them the opposite, close quote. But, Andrew, is it, is it over the top to say that transsexual members of the military may present some difficulties for the service quite apart from whether they're able and willing to do the job?
1: Oh, yes. I think that, um, that that's a perfectly reasonable um, remark to make. Um, I think it's important all the way through, of course, not to, um, to lead to conclusions about uh, transsexuals, but one of the things that we can uh, and, and in and of itself, we must know about them. Is that they are uncertain about something that is absolutely epicentral to um, to identity, i.e., one's sexuality. And therefore, in order to be bemused or confused or uh, or uncertain about something that is so important in life, it strikes me that this isn't necessarily the kind of um, uh, prerequisite that one would look for in a uh, in a serving. Um, soldier of the United States or indeed British Army. Now, what the next problem that comes up, of course, is the one where um, and I expect you have it on your list of questions to ask me, is <laughs> to say, well, 50 years ago, uh, or 100 years ago, um, blacks were also discriminated against right. in the U.S. Army in a way that is um, there you are, you did have it, didn't you? Uh, <laughs> that it is uh, a, uh, now rightly considered to be absolutely despicable and disgraceful and we wouldn't uh, put up with it for a moment. But I think there's a big difference here between a tiny minority of people who are transsexuals and a very significant proportion of Americans who are of uh, are African-American origin. And I think that uh, if your country had spent uh, you know, four years ripping itself apart and 600,000 people dying for the rights of transsexuals to be recognized, then that would be one thing. Mm. But in fact, the American Civil War was about the, uh, the rights of, uh, of blacks. So I really do think that um, in any kind of grown up debate about this beyond the sort of form uh, debating society, one can see that there is a huge difference between uh, one and the
0: other. When it comes to the, the broader topic of this issue of strategic about the effect of political correctness on the military, how would you compare the environment with the American military versus the British military? Is there sort of a, a rough parity there as far as how much influence political correctness has or is it different?
1: Well, yes. Um, in fact, they are. No, they're very alike. In fact, only this week we've had the uh, situation where the um, SAS, are uh, elite, um, military unit, um, special forces unit, has been told that it has to make the entry requirements into this uh, regiment, famed regiment going back to the Second World War, which of course has uh, fought on the front line and many, many or indeed behind the front lines, behind the enemy front lines of uh, many, many conflicts since then, has been told that actually they must make it easier to uh, to get in because um, uh, some uh, recruits Um, died. They they, they overheated and didn't have enough water and therefore now they're going to be doctors uh, monitoring and uh, and uh, under certain circumstances you can't actually go out and even take part in the uh, recruitment process and if it's too hot now, this is a classic example of, uh, of really, of lawfare as much as uh, anything to do with warfare and, um, and victimhood, the victim's families, victims. The word victim, of course, in this is a rather strange one to use, but nonetheless, it is used by the human rights lobby, um, to, uh, to try to make, um, make life nicer, effectively. But the point about an army is that you have to have people who, Are capable of fighting in every kind of circumstance, including extreme heat.
0: When we talked to Tom Donnelly from the American Enterprise Institute uh, for another episode in this series, he indicated that in the American context anyway, he thought that the sort of rank and file members of the military um, had a very low tolerance for this sort of rampant political correctness, but that it was a little bit different when you got up the chain of command. And that the the brass and the people who you know by necessity, in their line of work spend a lot more time on political interactions were much more sensitive about these issues. Does that characterization ring true to you
1: it does and it 's certainly seen in the uh, in the British army where the it 's the chiefs of staff and their um, and their advisors and their um, deputies who seem to go out of their way to try to uh, fit into the, um, to the politically correct lobby, largely because, of course, they're the people who have to interface with politicians who, uh, who also want to look as though they're, uh, they're being very, um, very open-minded and, and liberal. Whereas down the food chain, as it were, the, when you get to the grumps on the, uh, on the actual front line, um, they have uh, much the same sort of, I'd say, commonsensical attitudes that uh, the rest of society does.
0: And you make mention in your piece at Strategico, I'll quote you to you again, uh, quote, we can be certain that if the military does bifurcate along ideological grounds between traditionalists and those who wish to accommodate the Obama administration's new craze, history suggests the traditionalists will lose out and the secretary of defense will promote the fattists over them, close quote. Um, Andrew, America has this proud tradition of civilian control over the military do we need to be worried though about the fact that the the cultural gap between the two sides seems to be growing maybe not exclusively with the obama administration but that the gap does seem to be getting larger
1: i think that's right i think that a um, an increasingly uh, carping media uh, is uh, is partly to blame for this, the headlines you see are, um, are very often unfair to the top brass of the military. Um, and also just sheer careerism. If you know that you're going to be much more likely to uh, get promoted, the more closely um, identified you are uh, in a politician's mind with these new fads, then I'm afraid, you know, um, uh, soldiers aren't... Uh, uh, immune to um, to ambition. Of course they're not. And uh, so one thing leads to another all too
0: often. So the final question that I'll pose to you as a professional historian, when we talk about the decline of great military powers, we tend to look first anyway at material factors, at overstretched, a lack of resources, at economic concerns. Mm-hmm. To what degree ought we to factor in Culture. I mean do we look at fads like what you're describing here and do we say eh, it's, it's a sign of the times but it will pass or do we say, look, this could be a harbinger of, of major institutions sort of losing their way and taking their eye off the ball?
1: Oh, definitely. I think if you look historically at the fall of the great empires and I, and I do see with reservations America as being the latest and greatest uh, imperial power in, in human history. Um, then you see the way in which they 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 die, the way in which they collapse and uh, and are broken, is very rarely anything to do with their um, their actual material strength vis-à-vis those people that uh, that bring them down. It's always down to willpower. Look at the Romans. Look at the British Empire, which uh, stretched over a third of the world's a quarter of the world's land surface. Um, you know, we were far more powerful than the uh, than the small. Um, uh, nations that took us on. Uh, you yourselves were beaten by Vietnam, an army that was minute in comparison to yours. Uh, it's a, it's a moment really where hey, the Austrian uh, Austrian Empire brought down effectively by uh, by little Serbia. You know, it's these small groups and small um, uh, engagements that remind. Everybody, how, or at least tell everybody how um, how the lack of willpower uh, in the greater and stronger and richer country um, is the uh, is the defining. Factor, and I don't think, of course, that transsexualism is going to be the it's going to be the <laughs> reason that uh, that uh, your American imperium is finally going to come to an end after you know three quarters of a century or so. But I do think that it is a uh, one of a number of uh, indications that um, the America of, uh, of today is not quite the America of uh, General Marshall and General Eisenhower.
0: All right. My guest has been Andrew Roberts, honorary senior scholar at Keyes College, Cambridge, and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. You can read his essay and those from other members of the group by visiting us online at hoover.org forward slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Andrew, thank you for being with us. Thank you. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Strategica, and I'm Victor Davis Hanson.